question for you this morning. Have you, have you ever realized that a warning is an act of grace? That a warning is an act of grace. You think in military terms, when you're trespassing on you know, forbidden territory and you get the so-called proverbial shot across the bow, the warning shot. You had, nobody, you had no idea someone was watching you and they didn't have to warn you by not shooting you. That's a good thing. Now, that may not be your experience, people shooting at you, but you may have had this experience. While I'm hesitant to, um, to use a personal story because then you may question my driving ability, I was in Rock Hill for about a month and was not quite certain where all the school zones just were. And in a bid to get the kids to school in time, I made a right turn at a place where I couldn't. And I'm doing 20 miles an hour, and all of a sudden, I see blue lights behind me. You know what happens. You go, oh, surely he's going after someone else. <laughs> 20 miles an hour, he, what's he going to do? No idea what I had done. And then when I realize he is going 20 miles an hour behind me, your blood freezes. And you go, what in the world did I do? He pulls me over, and my kids are wondering if Dad's going to jail and what all is happening, and I'm fumbling around in my glove box because the kids put all kinds of stuff in there, and I can't find anything that I need, and met the kindest and most gentle Rock Hill police officer, and he, of course, he took my information, and I still had out-of-state tags, and he said, you're new to town, aren't you? Yes, sir, I am. You got it. And what did he do? He gave me a warning. You better believe there's not a right-hand turn that I make that I'm not looking for signs all over the place now. Because the warning works to inform you and educate you that there are consequences that will happen if you don't heed them. In the same way, Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount today. And he doesn't conclude it by giving kind of another sermon with new information. Really what he does is he wraps everything up and he puts a bow on it. And the way that he does that is by warning us about the seriousness of living out the Sermon on the Mount. Now it's been said that there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who divide everyone into two kinds of people and those who don't. And basically that's what Jesus does this morning. He, he gives us options, but not too many of them. And he says that ultimately when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, when it comes to Christ, when it comes to the Christian message, there really are all kinds of choices. And so this morning we look at a little bit longer passage of Scripture, and we will not have the opportunity to explore all of the nuances and uh, wonderful things that are in there. Uh, there's a comprehensive net effect from going through all of these warnings together. And so we'll be in Luke chapter 7, verses 13 through 29. And I'll begin with verses 13 and 14, the passage that I read right before we prayed. And essentially it's this, that Jesus encourages his people to enter by the small gate and to follow the narrow way. Jesus says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. 
How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life. And there are few that find it. In my study this week, I was confronted with a question that I'd never really thought about before. What comes first, the gate or the path? Does the gate issue into a pathway? Or is the gate what you encounter at the end of life as you go through the pearly gates and you take the right path to get to it? Well, Jesus says that he is the door in other ways, that he is the entryway into the kingdom. And I think it makes good sense for us to understand that there is an initial gate that someone must pass through that leads to a different pathway. But regardless of which way you might prefer to interpret this passage, the gate and the way are closely connected. What does a gate serve as? It serves as an entrance. What does the way serve as? It is a continual pathway, a mode of um, traveling that leads to some destination. And we can see very clearly here that the options between the narrow gate, the wide gate, the wide road, the narrow road, lead to two very different destinations. One leads to destruction and one leads to life. And so when it talks about entering through the right gate, it also talks about staying on the right path. It's not just an issue of evangelism and believing the right message. It's an issue of discipleship and walking the way that you're supposed to. And so very early on, Jesus says, man, it is not just about going through the right door. It is an issue of staying on the right path. By dividing everyone into one of these two groups, they choose this path or they choose this path. Jesus is saying something that I think we don't think about regularly. And it's this. Every person, every person, every person in this room, every person you will meet is a disciple of something. Every person you meet is a disciple of something. Now, the word disciple usually has a, a, a specifically religious connotation. But to be a discipler is to be a learner, a follower of something. And you can be a follower of nothing specifically religious, and you're still a disciple of something. You may be a disciple of yourself, your own creature comforts, and your own personal convictions. Conversations yesterday with many people that were visiting our church, when we'd ask them, so tell me a little bit about your church attendance. Oh, well, I don't go to church, but I'm a very righteous and religious person. By your own definition, I'm sure. Perhaps not by Jesus's. And so one of the things that he tells us here under this first point is that the gate you've entered, if you, if you wonder, which gate did I go through? The gate you've entered is indicated by your present way of life. Because the path and the gate go together. And so there doesn't need to be any guesswork. Am I on the right path? Am I following God's will? Am I truly a disciple or have I deceived myself? You can tell what gate you've gone in by looking down at your feet and looking at what pathway you're on. He says that the pathway that leads to destruction is, is broad. It's the natural way. It's the way of all humanity, unless they have specifically sought for this other gate that is hard to find. Doesn't that sound counterintuitive? Wouldn't Jesus make it a highway to heaven? and not an overgrown pathway? The point that he's making here is that if you don't know that you have chosen the right door or the right path, then you haven't. 
You have it. The default position for all of humanity is to be on the broad way that leads to destruction. And what is so dangerous about this is, isn't it true that when you want to buy a car or you want to purchase something, you check out consumer reports? Let's see what everyone else has to say about this car. What do you do? You make your decisions based upon popularity. If a car ends up on the top 10 lemon list of all time, you're probably not going to buy it if you've done your research. But you know what? Wow, those Toyota Camrys, they rank high in customer satisfaction. And you may never have considered that make or model of a car, but because others say that it is good, you follow the same pathway. And the thing that is so insidious and so damning about the Broadway is it really does kind of look like it's the way to life. It is tempting with its delicacies. It is alluring with its moral permission. Ah, if you want it, go for it. It's characterized by an outward righteousness, but the truth is, no matter how many people choose it, it doesn't change its destination. It ends in death and destruction. In contrast to that, the narrow way is small. It's hard to find. It's not popular. It's restrictive. We've got teams of people that are preparing to go overseas. And they're asking questions. How much luggage can I not take before I have to start paying for it? On the narrow path, you can't take any luggage. It's restrictive. It's a narrow path. You're passing through a a crevice, through a chasm. You You can barely make your way through here. And there's no baggage that you can take, but you can take everything you want on the Broadway. You can get you a U-Haul. You can have a caravan. The narrow way is the way of repentance. It is the way of turning away from the things that the world approves of to live in a distinctly different way. And the looks here are so deceiving. I'm a man with kids. Certainly, I'm going to take the paved path, not not the trek through the woods. It just makes sense to go where everyone else is. It's safer. Sometimes God calls us to do things that at first blush are not good common sense. He calls us to get off the highway, to go backpacking in a dangerous direction with no supplies, but to cast ourselves upon Him and to trust Him. The Broadway seems by appearance and popularity, much livelier, uh, much fuller. But it's only the narrow way that supplies life, and it's the broad way that subtracts it. Unfortunately, the sad truth is that most of the people on the Broadway never realize it until they arrive at the destination. You've heard the guy that was interested in climbing the ladder and did it all his life just to find that it was leaning against the wrong wall. Jesus is giving a warning here that how we start and how we follow is really important. But that's not the only warning that he gives. He continues on in verses 15 through 23, and he warns the pilgrim on the path to beware false leaders and false followers. Jesus has already done something amazing. He said, all right, there are two ways. There's there's the wide way and there's the narrow way. And you know what? Just about everybody goes this way. 
there's, there's a great crowd, there's a throng, there's a mass of people. And so Jesus has already separated his disciples from this great crowd to the chosen few. He's reduced from the crowd to the community. And then he says something that is really, indeed, a terrible warning. He says, just because you've gotten through the right door and the right path, don't think you can be careless now. There's still a warning for you. There are still things for you to pay attention to. Just because you're on the right path doesn't mean that you can rest. In spiritual terms, Satan is a tyrant who will not lose his followers happily or willingly. And once you've gotten off of his path and onto the king's path, there are consequences of following Christ. And Satan will do everything he can to recapture you or to retard you as you go on your journey. Two of the ways that he does it that Jesus warns us about here are false leaders and false followers. Look at verses 15 through 20. After the people have gone through the right gate and gotten on the right path, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous, ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can produce... A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a good tree can't, I'm sorry, a good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you will recognize them by their fruit. It seems like the longer we're a Christian, the easier we think it would be to spot a counterfeit. If a false teacher was among you, would you catch him right away? It's interesting to note that among uh, the Mormon cult, the number one group of people that they prey upon are Southern Baptists. Because if they say that they believe the Bible, we don't really check them out, do we? And so if they can justify in some twisted way that they follow the Scriptures, Southern Baptists just prove to be duped enough to follow along. And here's the thing. It's not that we're, it's not that we're naive. It's not that we lack intelligence. It's that the wolves don't look like wolves. What does the scripture say? They are wolves, ravenous and ravaging. But they hide themselves how? In sheep's clothes. They look, they smell, they bleat like a sheep. Jesus says they are wolves in the chicken coop, so to speak. He calls them false prophets, and I think a lot of times when we talk about prophecy... We think that prophets are only people that tell the future. That's actually very little about what prophets did. Prophets were truth-tellers. They did give warnings about future things. But they were truth-tellers, not just future predictors. And so as truth-tellers, in heeding the warning that there are false prophets, false leaders among us, this requires wise discernment, not naive acceptance when it comes to people's teaching. So how in the world do you know if someone is a false teacher, if someone is a false prophet? You do the same thing you do when you go shopping for your fruits and vegetables. You thunk the melons. You turn the carton over to see if those strawberries have any mold on the bottom of them. 
you inspect the veggies before you put them in your cart. And listen, this is, not, this is a form of judgment, but this is not judgmentalism. This is wisdom. I mean, how many of you, as a parent or grandparent, would give your kids bad food on purpose? You wouldn't bring that into your home. And yet sometimes if a person smiles enough on TV and has enough people following, following him and meets in an athletic amphitheater that's been turned into a church, we think it's okay to listen to his teaching when it has nothing to do with the scriptures. So when he offers you your, your best smile now and your best hell later, we'll drink it up in dregs. Jesus says, you'll know false teachers by their fruit. So what do we look for? I think it's important for us to understand the mathematics of false teaching. Now, I'm not the math teacher. I don't even like math. I like a math teacher because that way I don't have to do math. Here's four things that you can um, use to examine a false teacher. Number one, they add to what God has said in the Bible. The Bible's not enough. They add to what God has said in the Bible. Number two, they subtract from Jesus' deity or his work on the cross. Number three, they multiply the requirements of salvation. Oh, it's not enough to have faith. You have to be circumcised. Oh, it's not enough to be, um, have faith. You have to be baptized to be saved. It's not enough to do this. You, have to, you, know, you need a second blessing to truly be born again. Number four, they divide allegiance from God. How do you figure out a false teacher? Do they add, subtract, multiply, or divide? Here's the thing that is strong language from Jesus. You know what false teachers are good for? Did you see what it said in verse 20? Or verse 19, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. False teachers are good for firewood for hell. That's it. No matter how attractive they look, no matter how pious they sound... Jesus is the only thing they're good for because they do not bear good fruit is to be cut down and cast into the fire. Here's what's dangerous. It's not just false followers or false leaders that we have to beware of. We have to beware of false followers. Look at verse 21 through 23. Jesus is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? But I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. These people did all these things in Jesus' name. And he says, I didn't know you. If there's, if there's a follower of Christ that we want to be like, it's these people. Because they seem like super achievers. How many of you, when you made your initial commitment to Christ, said, my goal in life is to be a mediocre disciple. I want to be, I want to be lukewarm. I want to be half or No. We all desire to start better. And these people are the poster child for what it means to be a follower of Christ. They're doing these miraculous signs. They're doing these, this incredible work. Obviously, they're on Jesus' team. And Jesus says, I didn't draft them. They put themselves on the team. I have no contract with them as their coach. They preach in his name. 
and they show great power, but wonders done in public are no indication of a private walk with God. Some of the largest churches in America are people that do not know the gospel. Or if they know it, they don't love it. And I sit there and I go, how, how can churches that seek to love and proclaim and teach and reach with the gospel not, not grow like these teachers of false churches do? Wonders done in public are no indication of someone's private standing with God. The astounding truth this morning is there's not just danger outside from Satan. There's, there's trouble on the pathway. There are leaders who will lead us astray. And there are followers that look like they love and serve Jesus, but they're not. Satan attacks from outside, but he has agents of his that may not even know that they're agents of his that are on the inside. So we have to ask the question, if these super achievers are not disciples, what does a true follower look like? And Jesus gives us the answer very simply in verse 21. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but who? Only the one who does the will of my Father. What's he saying? It is not wonder-working, It's obedience. And it's not that our obedience saves us. It's that our obedience proves our allegiance to the one and only one who can save us. The issue with these others, doesn't it look like they're doing God's will? I mean, they're preaching, they're healing, they're exercising demons. Here's the issue with the others. These false followers, and they valued exciting, charismatic success but not boring old obedience. If you were offered the option to be a wonder worker or just simply be obedient, which would you choose? Here's the thing that I find um, enlightening. The apostles were certainly wonder working men. They had a charismatic power about them to do amazing things. But their power was incidental. What was most important to the apostles? To obey. They didn't seek to be power wielders. They didn't seek to make much of themselves. They sought to obey. And by the way, Jesus gave them a power to attest to the message that they were preaching to. They didn't seek it. They were given it because of their obedience. For these false followers, their gifts were more important than God's grace. Their works were more important than their faith. Jesus here clearly says that the kingdom of heaven is future. He says, there will come a day when all these people will say to me, why to him? Because he's the one that tells them, come on in or depart from me. We sometimes have this image of God that he's a, he's a grandfather with a big beard in the sky and that he's the one that judges. And Jesus here claims that right for himself. The one who died For whoever will repent is the one who says to those who don't, you can't come in. The man who has demonstrated love by laying down his life is the one who controls entrance into the kingdom. 
So we can summarize this part of the message by saying that Jesus wants to be the Lord of your message and your morality. He doesn't want you to just work wonders. He wants you to be obedient. Because confession on the lips does not mean consecration of the heart. Profession is not equal to possession. You can profess things that are not true. And in these people's case, they knew his name, obviously. But they didn't know him. Jesus goes on to teach that there is a great difference between being a sayer and a doer in verses 24 through 27. And this is the difference between a person choosing the right or the wrong pathway, listening to the wrong influence, or following the wrong people. Because in verse 24, he says, Therefore, because of all these things, because of my teaching and because of these warnings, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man, a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew, pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew, and pounded that house, and it collapsed, and its collapse was great. As we just saw in the warning about the false leaders and false followers, we saw that life and lip must be in harmony. What we say and what we do must agree. And the previous passage showed us the possibility of being a fake disciple. We looked at the apparent super saints performing all these wonders, but what about more normal people? In this last section, he addresses you and me. I've never cast out a demon of you. Never prophesied in the sense of declaring the future truthfully, accurately. Have you? But you and I are in this passage. We've heard Jesus' words, haven't we? We have the opportunity to act upon them, don't we? Jesus says everyone, everyone must choose to build on the right foundation. You get that wrong, and everything is wrong. So how do we do that? Well, the foundation, the rock, is Jesus' words and what we do with them. Building on the right foundation requires more than simply hearing or a temporary flurry of good activities. Look at what he says. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man. Verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act upon them is like a foolish man. Do you see the similarity between the two? One is wise and one is foolish, but what do they both do? They both hear. They hear the same message. They're engaged in the same task. And Jesus is not really talking about building a physical house. He's talking about building your life. And that your, the house is a metaphor for your life. And every, just like a house will be built upon a foundation, every life is built upon some kind of foundational principle. Will you love and obey God or will you not? And so they hear the same message. They have the same task. They both face the same challenge, the same wind and rain and rivers and wind. What was different? One heard and acted. 
No, they both heard and acted. One heard and acted upon. And one heard and acted by not doing anything. Our faith cannot be simply talk, which Jesus would call hypocrisy. It should be talk and action, a principled obedience. And at this point, I think it's good for us to make sure that we understand the Christian life accurately. Because at least according to this parable about the two builders, he says something that I think our day and age needs to hear. That Christianity, the Christian life, is more about survival than it is about sensation. You watch the way that Christianity is portrayed on television with these mega preachers that if you just give now, God will bless later. If you had enough faith, you wouldn't be sick. If you, if you gave to, 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 to this thing that our church is doing, you'll be blessed spiritually beyond measure. Well, that's easy because you can't measure it. You give us $100,000 and you'll, have, you'll be spiritually rich. We want sensation, don't we? We want wonders on our behalf. Yet in this passage, he says, you know what? Be content for your house to survive. Be content to survive the storm. Be content with boring old obedience, even if you're never a wonder worker. Because the Christian life is more about survival, persevering, than it is about sensation. We're so tempted to crave it. And for someone whose Christian life is built upon sensation, what happens when difficulty comes? You give up. Well, Christianity must not work. That guy on the TV told me, if I had no, I got faith, and he said, if I had no faith, it would work out. No. Why do we give up? Because we were expecting fun, not a fight. We were expecting to be selfish, not to go through a storm. And you'll notice both of these people go through the storm because Christians are never promised protection from, but they are promised preservation within. In verses 28 and 29, the Sermon on the Mount concludes like this. When Jesus had finished this sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. Jesus finishes and the Bible records that the people were amazed. Because of the way that Jesus taught. He didn't quote others. He didn't tell funny stories. But what they knew was what they had just heard was amazing. Matthew concludes with a crowd who hears. What will they do with the message? Will they act upon it? They just heard about everyone who hears and one who acts upon and builds it like a wise man or like a foolish man if he doesn't. And Matthew concludes by saying, they heard. Haven't done anything yet. They've heard. And we know, as they do, that hearing is not enough. Will they obey? And friends, that very same question comes down to us. What will you do? I think three conclusions here. You must choose, but the options are limited. There's only two gates. There's only two paths. There's only two kinds of teachers, two kinds of followers. There are only two foundations. What's the direction of your life? Will you follow faithfully the little flock, or do you want to go with the great herd? 
What influences will you allow to influence your life? Who will you listen to? False leaders and false followers or true leaders and true followers? What foundation will you build your life upon? How will you act upon God's word? Number two, pay attention to the fact that fruit is obvious. Jesus makes very clear judgment. He says, you will know them by their fruit. There really is no need for surprise at the end. Because what we're producing in our lives right now either serves as a warning sign or a confirming sign of the path that we're on. So if you look at your life in light of Scripture and you see the kind of fruit that you're producing, if you're not happy about it, the Bible has one word for you. Repent. Repent. It does not have to be this way. But if you do not heed the warning, it won't be a warning next time. You'll get a ticket. You'll pay the full price of the penalty. So this truth that the fruit is obvious, does it frighten you or does it encourage you? Third and finally, we have to heed the warning that the consequences are eternal. They are eternal. The broad path leads to destruction. False teachers will be cut down and thrown into the fire. False followers are told, depart from me, I never knew you. False disciples suffer the total destruction of the thing that they've spent their entire life building. Sometimes I think if we had a time machine, we wish we could go back and hear Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Wouldn't that be a wonder? Wouldn't that be amazing? And Jesus says, you don't need a time machine. I've already recorded everything that you need right here. What he would tell you, the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired. It's meant to be obeyed. Be amazed at Jesus' teaching, but act upon it. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in your grace you give us warnings. You, you warn us about the perils of choosing our own path. You choose us about the dangers of not being wise. You, you give us the grace that even outside of the scriptures, from our own experience, we can look at our life and we can discern whether we are truly in the faith or not. God, in your great grace to us, as a God who is loving and full of compassion and forgiveness, you give us these warnings so that our eyes might be open to the truth of things, that we might repent and bow before you as king and say, we desire to live for you. There's an initial way in which we all do that to become Christians, but there's a continual and ongoing way in which we need to do this every day. We are not wise enough, we are not strong enough, we are not good enough to do anything that you have commanded of us. Help us today, as people who love your word, to not simply admire your word, but to obey it. In Jesus' name we pray.